0: I don't typically think about John Piper first in connection with his impact on missions. Nevertheless, the opening lines of his book on missions, entitled Let the Nations Be Glad, first penned 30 years ago, have since made a significant impact on modern missions. And those lines are really good, and they bear repeating. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because... Worship doesn't. And Piper goes on and adds a few lines later all of history is moving toward one great goal, the white hot worship of God and his son among all the peoples of the earth. Missions is not that goal, it is the means. And for that reason, it is the second greatest human activity in the world. This morning, for our church's annual emphasis on missions, we will focus our attention on both. ...of the two greatest human activities in the world, missions and worship. And we'll seek to see more clearly their biblical connection. If worship is both the fuel and the goal of missions, as Piper suggests... ...it is important for us to seek to ground our understanding and practice of worship in the Scriptures. Most of us in this building are not going to be foreign missionaries... But I hope you recognize that if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are and must be involved in missions. And if that is the case, then it is crucial for each one of us to understand that which is both the fuel and the goal of missions. If we find ourselves disconnected from missions, disconnected from God's mission in this world, perhaps... It is because we're not rightly worshiping our Lord. Perhaps our lack of enthusiasm and interest in missions is because we have a skewed and distorted understanding of worship. Perhaps our disconnect from missions comes because we don't really understand what missions is for. To crystallize Piper's biblical point, we should say that corporate worship is the fuel and goal of missions. When we considered this during our fall missions emphasis in 2020, looking at Psalm 150, the final climactic praise psalm of the book of Psalms, we turned finally to the book of Revelation where we get visionary glimpses of heavenly worship that's going on right now and also the worship that will continue for all eternity. It is manifestly a picture of corporate worship, thus we're given a picture of eternal worship purified, perfected, corporate worship of the one true God. Therefore, what should our temporary, impure, imperfect, partial, incomplete corporate worship of the one true God look like today? Shouldn't the visions of what's coming in the future shape what we do now? But at this very point, there is a very great temptation, a temptation many churches today are giving into to shape our corporate worship according to very different, very unbiblical standards. Stephen Lawson said in a recent conference panel discussion dedicated to the topic of worship, if you're trying to be culturally relevant, you're taking the wrong cues. You don't want your worship to be as much like the world as it can possibly be. You want your worship to be as much like heaven as it can possibly be. Because of this danger, we need to look critically at what we do and at what we're tempted to do, and we've got to examine our assumptions and our experiences, and perhaps most profoundly, we need to consider the place of emotions in worship. We'll be digging into Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 21, in order to address these things, a passage that doesn't use the word worship at all, but is certainly describing corporate worship. But before we look there, let's consider some definitional matters up front. John Piper seeks to highlight the essence of worship, but he does so in individualistic terms. He suggests that the essence of worship is to act in a way that reflects the heart's valuing of the glory of God. To put it that way gets the key element right. We are talking about expressing how we value God, but it's perhaps too generic too vague in the ways that that might look, and I'm concerned about that vagueness. Piper's book certainly gets more specific along the way, so I'm not faulting him here. However, my concern is that many Christians believe that we can express our heart's valuing of God in any way we see fit, and I think many Christians are tempted to think that we have the freedom to express worship in any way that makes us feel good. In fact, I'm concerned that we've too tightly tied worship to certain emotional expressions. As I was studying Romans recently, focusing in on Paul's expression of worship at the end of Romans 11, commentator Michael Byrd expressed the concern I'm talking about this way. He writes, I remember once hearing a pastor from a big church lament that he wished the people in his church loved God as much as they love to worship God. What he meant was that some of his parishioners were more exhilarated by the experience of worship than with marveling at the God who is there to be worshiped. The problem was that they enjoyed the medium more than the message, and they were more entranced with worship entertainment than with authentic and heartfelt worship. So, what's the difference between a concert and worship? Can you worship as an individual at a concert? Yep, sure can. But is what happens at a concert, including the kind of emotional excitement, the kind of emotional thrill, equal to what we experience on Sunday mornings gathered together in our church with other believers? Some churches have concluded that it is, so that they have chosen to shape their musical elements more like a concert employing some of the same strategies as secular entertainers. Some Christians have become rather addicted to concert experiences, and given the choice of attending a normal Sunday morning service, where there's no jumping up and down, and there's no dancing around in the aisles, and there's no bass line thumping through the walls, or attending a Christian rock show, they pick the concert every time. And then they come to church on Sunday morning and they muddle through the four or five songs, sit down to hear the preacher's monologue, and then they go home and they say things like, well, I just didn't feel very worshipful this morning. I just didn't get anything out of church today. Ho-hum. Oh, well, there's a concert coming on Friday night. I'll really worship then. It's tempting to look at the megachurches who have professionally trained musicians, a tech team playing with all the latest gadgets, and a wildly dynamic speaker who hits all the right emotional chords, and we can say, wow, they really know how to worship. If you ever find yourself thinking that, can I ask you, how do you make that assessment? Is there anything in that description that fits a biblical definition or a biblical description of worship. Do you look at a person who cries when she sings and see that as evidence that the spirit must be at work in her life? Do you look at a person who's jumping up and down with excitement while he sings and see that as evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit? Barthakam calls this whole picture into question. He says We say we want spirit-filled worship to just be about how loudly and emotionally we sing our songs, regardless of our communion with God or lack thereof, regardless of our conformity to Christ or lack thereof, and regardless of our submission to that authority that God has placed in our lives, through which we exercise our submission to Christ. If I could have absolutely no communion with God whatsoever, but just really enjoy loud, emotional singing, I can do that. If I am a rebel and don't want to submit to anyone, but I, can, I just can't resist a good, powerful worship set... That's easy, because I can, on the one hand, call myself an exemplary worshiper, and on the other hand, not to have, not, ha- not, to have, not have to amend my life at all. Do you get the point? Emotional expression is easy compared with actual life transformation that worship demands. Now, to be sure, both are good to have together. But I think Bauckham is onto something here. And each of us needs to examine ourselves carefully at this point. Bauckham analyzes this phenomenon that's raging in our churches today. And he suggests that the reason there is often this emotional fervor in the context of a performance that's elevated to and labeled as spiritual worship is that many people are seeking to manipulate God. Bauckham fleshes it out like this. We'll gather together and worship and, just like the pagans do, try to manipulate God. If I can just be loud enough, if I can just cry enough, if I can just sweat enough, if I can beat myself and bleed enough, then perhaps, perhaps God will hear and I can manipulate God into giving me what I want. And He will say, you know what, I see you. You did a good job. What can I do for you? With Bauckham, I want to say to all of us today, don't be distracted by that. Don't be lured away from true worship by that. To quote Bauckham once more, and then we'll get into Ephesians 5, I may not look like the pagans with sweat beating down off of their face, and I may not look like them with their convulsions, and I may not sound like them with their animalistic sounds coming out of me, but that does not mean that I can't or don't have a deeply meaningful and in many ways more emotional connection with the One who saved me and redeemed me and with whom I commune in worship because of the person and work of Christ who redeemed me. We want to consider this morning how the Bible characterizes truly Spirit-filled worship. It is unfortunate that one wing of Christianity has co-opted the term spirit-filled. Likewise, it is unfortunate that one wing of Christianity has co-opted the biblical term charismatic and turned it into a description that goes beyond what the biblical term itself describes. All true Christian worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit, Paul speaks of all Christians in Philippians 3, 3 as the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Commentator Michael Byrd characterizes worship this way, Worship is not for the sensory elation or emotional release it gives us. Rather, it is to prize and enjoy the God who loves us. Worship must be Godward and God soaked. Otherwise, it's just religious noise for consumers. If we distort corporate worship, we will have diluted the fuel of missions and we will have lost sight of the goal of missions. Ephesians 5, 18 to 21 will help us maintain proper balance here. Let's read these verses. Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 21. Now let's consider some overarching summary comments and take a glance at the larger context. First, notice that verse 18 is a contrast, contains a contrast of a negative command followed by a positive command. Then the positive command, be filled with the Spirit, is elaborated in verses 19 to 21 with five distinct activities. Secondly, considering the broader context, recall that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is divided in two broad sections. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul laid out the gospel and developed it in various ways directly applicable to the church in Ephesus, highlighting certain major themes, particularly God's grace extended through the death and resurrection of Jesus to Jew and Gentile alike, uniting believers to Christ Christ establishing the church as God's new man and God's new temple. Then in chapters 4 to 6, Paul emphasizes various implications of the gospel, giving commands and instructions for how Christians should live in light of what God has done for them in Christ. And we should note that there are 12 references to the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, and they are equally distributed throughout the book, with 6 in chapters 1 to 3 and 6 in chapters 4 to 6. In that sense, as one writer has suggested, Ephesians provides the most comprehensive perspective on the Holy Spirit's ministry in Paul's letters. Now, if we glance back at verses 15 to 17, we find that verse 18 is actually the third contrasting set of commands in the immediate context. In verses 15 to 16, Paul writes, "'Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise.'" Making the best use of the time, because the days are our evil. Notice the command essentially to walk wisely, and then notice how that positive command gets fleshed out by a particular activity. Making the best use of the time, or as it's most more famously translated, redeeming the time. Then in verse 17, Paul writes, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's important to keep in mind here that there's a great emphasis on the mind in these sections. There's a wisdom emphasis even in this very passage that we need to recall. Some folks want to separate whatever is characterized as spirit-filled from the activity of the mind, but Paul will never allow that. If we were to venture back to chapter 4, we would find a heavy emphasis on the mind and the understanding of Christians, and that certainly carries over into this section. True, Spirit-filled worship engages the mind and the emotions, never setting them at odds with each other. So let's dive into this passage. We've got to first deal with these contrasting commands in verse 18. Look at them again. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The negative command is quite straightforward. Christians should never get drunk with wine, period. However, the reason Paul gives broadens out Paul's concern here. The ESV says, for that is debauchery. The Greek word translated debauchery is translated dissipation in some versions. An equally unhelpful translation, in my opinion. Those are not words we use in everyday conversation. Other versions paraphrase, but I think get the point across perhaps a bit more clearly. The Old King James Version speaks of excess. The Christian Standard Bible refers to reckless living. The Evangelical Heritage Version, which is a Lutheran translation published in 2019, paraphrases this as, which causes you to lose control. I think that's getting at the point most clearly. The Greek word could literally be translated as unsaved. Unsaved. It's actually related to the Greek word for salvation with a negative prefix on the front. If God has saved someone, rescued them from slavery, then they are now safe. Allowing wine to diminish your faculties results in you living like you're not safe, doing dangerous things, and ultimately wasting your life. The word was often used outside the Bible to describe general wastefulness. As one writer puts it, it refers to people who waste their resources to gratify their own sensual desires. So why shouldn't Christians get drunk with wine? It's a waste. Paul forbids drunkenness repeatedly, and he's echoing Old Testament prohibitions. God's Word makes it clear that God's people should not be coming under the influence of substances that cause them to lose self-control. Thus, it's appropriate to broaden Paul's command out here. Christians shouldn't be doing anything that leads them to waste their lives, waste their time, waste their resources. Suddenly, this negative command becomes all-encompassing, doesn't it? Even here, we can see a connection to missions, Missions is God's plan to set people free from being enslaved to everything that is not God. Everything that would lead to an eternally wasted life, including alcohol and other substances. If I may step on some toes, ask yourself whether continuing to smoke cigarettes or recreational marijuana does anything beyond waste your money and your health. The inebriation that comes from marijuana surely falls under the same category as the wine Paul mentions specifically. As one writer summarizes, any practice that diminishes a person's awareness of God and ability to respond to Him, and that suggests a life out of control, stands under the indictment of this text. But what shall we make of the positive command? That's where the emphasis is. Notice that's a passive command. Be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit here is metaphorically portrayed as a liquid. Paul does this in another place. Consider 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. In this verse, Paul first describes the Spirit as the baptizer, The Spirit is pictured as the one who dunks us into the body of Christ. But then He turns the picture around and portrays the Spirit as water that we drink. Thus, the Spirit puts us into the church, connecting us with Jesus and His body, the moment we trust in Him, and we take the Spirit into ourselves as well. So, similarly, in Ephesians 5.18, the Spirit is depicted as a liquid that fills us. But the passive voice of this command indicates that there is a filler, and that would be God the Father. So, the command is, be filled by God with the Spirit. In this metaphorical picture, we Christians are depicted as a cup. Now, notice the way I said that. We Christians, plural, are depicted as a cup, singular. I believe it is crucial for us to recognize that this command is not for individual Christians to be filled with the Spirit. Instead, he's commanding the church of Ephesus, and thus every other local church as a whole, to be filled with the Spirit. Thus, the question on the table is not, is Joe spirit-filled? Is Charlie spirit-filled? Is Donna spirit-filled? The question is, is Alfred Allman Bible Church spirit-filled? How will we know? We'll come back to that question momentarily. But first, we must consider what does this filling with the Spirit mean? While Paul's focus is on the church, the community as a whole... We can start by considering the individual. What does it mean for an individual Christian to be full of the Spirit? The book of Acts gives us an idea. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles instructed the church of Jerusalem to select seven men full of the Spirit and of wisdom to be appointed to oversee the care of the widows in that church. Stephen is then singled out as full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Then, as Stephen is being stoned to death, he died full of the Holy Spirit. Later, in Acts 11, Barnabas is described as full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, if we add to these references other places where someone is described as full of something, we might get the idea a little more clearly. Stephen was also described as full of grace and power in Acts 6, 8. And a woman named Tabitha was described in Acts 9.36 as full of good works and acts of charity. These are the things that characterized her life, the things that she was known for in the community. So when we see references to individuals being characterized by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom, or the Holy Spirit and faith, I think we're seeing a person whose faith, whose wisdom which are empowered by the Spirit, are plainly visible to all. Thus, I think we're close to the mark in saying that someone who is full of the Holy Spirit is someone in whose life the fruit of the Spirit or the wisdom provided by the Spirit are consistently evident. Now, let me add one final comment on what we see in Acts. There are several references to Christians being filled with the Spirit that I haven't mentioned. These other references are actually using a completely different Greek word, but it is a synonym. But in all these other occasions, where in your English Bible you're going to see the phrase, in Acts, filled with the Spirit, in every other occasion, there's a very specific pattern that's followed, which suggests that this other word is somewhat of a technical term. Let me give you an example. Acts chapter 4, verse 31 gives us the flavor. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Someone is filled with the Spirit, and in every case with this other Word, the immediate result is that whoever was filled in this way spoke God's Word. Thus, this is a picture of the way the Spirit empowers people to speak God's Word in different settings. Paul... In our passage, is talking about something different. In reflecting on our passage in Ephesians, I was struck by the contrast with drunkenness, defined in terms of wastefulness or excess, debauchery or dissipation, loss of control. Sometimes the idea of being spirit filled from this passage is discussed in terms of control. We want to be controlled by the spirit rather than controlled by alcohol or other substances. That's the way it's often characterized. But I don't think being controlled by the Spirit is a biblical idea. In fact, the final fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5.23 is self-control. Self-control. So, the Spirit enables us to exercise self-control. The Spirit doesn't take control of the Christian's life as though we become puppets or robots. What's my point? For the individual Christian, to be full of the Spirit is to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. To get further clarity on what this looks like, we can turn to Paul's instruction to the Colossians, which parallels our passage this morning very closely. In Colossians 3.16, he writes, "'Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit." singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. The 2011 NIV helps us see more clearly that Paul is not commanding each individual Christian to have the gospel dwelling in you as an individual. That is how the passage is often taken. But as in our passage in Ephesians, his concern is the community, the church. Thus, the church needs to have the gospel, the message of Christ dwelling among us richly how do we do that? Well, he tells us it's through teaching and admonishing one another in the form of our singing together. That implies that our singing must be communicating the Word of Christ, truths that reflect on and elaborate the gospel. As we'll see in just a minute, we need to recognize how significant the teaching ministry of our singing is. In Ephesians, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians, he says, the gospel must dwell richly among you. He's talking about the same reality in both passages. Being truly, biblically, Spirit-filled is to be Bible-saturated and gospel-centered. Indeed, this is the way we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Every one of the nine fruit mentioned in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 are character qualities, attitudes, and actions commanded of Christians in the Scriptures. And each one of these fruits are produced and developed by the Spirit, working through the Word of God and the preaching of the Gospel. So, back to Ephesians 5.18. How do we obey Paul's specific command? As a church, how do we pursue obeying the command, be filled with the Spirit, When we fail to recognize the plural significance of this command that Paul is addressing the church as a whole and not merely individual believers, we actually ignore the way Paul tells us to obey this command. He actually fleshes this out for us very clearly. The activities listed in verses 19 to 21 explain how we are to obey this passive command to be filled with the Spirit. So what are we supposed to do? The outline for the rest of the sermon, we're supposed to be speaking in songs, singing and making music, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. That is what Spirit-filled worship looks like. When individual Christians are full of the Spirit, they gather together and do these things. And thus the church looks like the Old Testament temple, where God's glory filled the Holy of Holies, And God's people sang and prayed and shared life together in certain ways. Paul's already spoken of the church as God's temple earlier in Ephesians. That the Spirit would fill the new covenant temple would be expected. And here, Paul tells us what that's going to look like. And ultimately, this temple is supposed to expand to encompass the whole earth so that God's glory would fill the whole earth. Isn't that the pursuit of missions? So, let's look briefly at each of these activities that should characterize Spirit-filled worship. First, in verse 19, we are to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let's talk about that word, spiritual, first. Whenever this word appears in Paul's letters, it always, with one exception, refers to something produced by the Spirit, with a capital S. Thus, the songs we are to be singing here are to be somehow produced by the Spirit. Now, in Greek, this adjective comes at the very, very end of the phrase, and it's quite possible that it's intended to describe each of these three different kinds of songs. Songs from the Holy Spirit, hymns from the Holy Spirit, and songs from the Holy Spirit. Thus, at bare minimum, we are to be singing songs found in the Scriptures. Each of these words is used to describe Old Testament psalms. Now, does that mean we are limited to only singing Spirit-inspired ly- lyrics drawn directly from the Scriptures? I don't believe so. There are some Christians and churches who do. But I do believe this word spiritual indicates that what we sing should be reflecting the Spirit-inspired truths of Scripture. The lyrics matter, and the Bible shall always be our primary standard for whether or not a song should be sung in corporate worship. Vodi Bakum says, If I'm just here for the experience, I can sing songs that completely contradict the truth of God's Word, and I'm okay. I mean, if the beat is right and the band is hot, I can sing all kind of lies and feel like... I've met with God. But if I understand worship in this context, rooted and grounded within these theological truths, there are certain things that I just can't say. The reason that someone can come away from singing songs that don't reflect the truth of God's Word and say, I really worshipped today, is in the God-designed power and intent of music, which we'll say more about in just a minute. But it is very important to remember at all times that spirit-filled worship is about so much more than our emotions and our feelings. But notice that the audience of our singing here is to be one another. This fits with what we see in Colossians 3. One of the main purposes that we sing together is to instruct one another. One writer has concisely summarized the basic God-designed properties of music And we can see how important each of these is in our corporate worship. He lists three components. They'll be up on the screen for you. Number one, music has the power to move and express the emotions. Even as David was able to soothe Saul's troubled spirit with his harp, so there is music that saddens, gladdens, arouses a martial spirit, entices lust, readies for sleep, and so on. Music may both arouse the whole range of human emotions and provide a vehicle for expressing them when they're already present. Number two, music has the power to stimulate the memory. As anyone who learned the ABC song knows, music is a great aid to the memory. Number three, music has the power to discipline and to corrupt the soul. This, at least, is the argument of the philosophers and theologians. Good music, that which consists of ennobling lyrics and moderate tunes, edifies and disciplines the soul. Bad music, that which consists of unworthy lyrics and tunes, inflames the passions, breaks down restraint, and corrupts the soul. Thus, we dare not minimize the importance of music, For the church, think of the practical role singing can play in missions as well. As churches are planted, it will be the songs that are sung that lay the theological foundation for new believers. Isn't that so often the way it is for our children? Children's ministry is full of music. For many of you who grew up in the church, can't you still remember some of those songs? On the other end of the spectrum, the new creation will be full of music and singing. And it makes sense that we should be experiencing the rehearsal during our lives. Let's press on in Paul's instruction here. Next, he turns the direction of our singing toward God. Spirit-filled worship includes singing and making music to God. Look at the rest of verse 19. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Bob Coughlin, author of the good book, Worship Matters, observes that All told, the Bible contains over 400 references to singing and 50 direct commands to sing. Another author adds, the command to sing is the most frequently repeated command found in Scripture. Why does God so often command His people to sing? Well, for one, it's because God Himself sings. Zephaniah 3.17 indicates that God celebrates His people with loud singing. Don't you want to hear that someday? Coughlin notes, We worship a triune God who sings, and He wants us to be like Him. If you find yourself, week after week, coming here and not singing, you really need to do some self-examination. Why won't you sing? Now, I'm not saying, and the Bible is not saying, that each Christian must sing every song that is ever sung in church. There are times when it is appropriate to just listen to the songs that everyone else is singing. But if you're concerned about how you sound to other people, Harold Best, former director of the excellent Wheaton College Conservatory, says plainly, singing is not an option for the Christian. No one is excused. Vocal skill is not a criterion. If you're not singing regularly, when you're gathered together with other Christians, why not? It's a repeated command in Scripture. You are being disobedient. Why? Now, some might want to take the phrase, with your heart, in Ephesians 5.19, as though it meant we should be singing in our minds, so that maybe we could just think through the words that others are singing with their voices, singing silently? But that won't do. All Paul means by this phrase is that our singing should be heartfelt, a genuine expression of our affection for God and appreciation for what He's done for us. Also, remember in the Bible, what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. The Spirit of God lives in each of our hearts as Christians, and it is He who stirs us to believe the true words that we're singing. And it is He who stirs our affections to love the truth that we're singing. God has saved us from our sins. Jesus has died to ransom and rescue sinners. Jesus has defeated the great enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Aren't these things worth singing about? If you never find yourself moved to sing, if you never find it within yourself to sing about what God has done for you, There is something wrong. Yes, we should get emotional about this. We should let the music move our emotions toward excitement, gratitude, love, and delight, and also toward lament and grieving over our sin where appropriate. The word translated make melody or make music does tend to refer specifically to the use of instruments, musical instruments, Aids of the voice. To quote Coughlin again, it seems that the primary purpose for instruments is to support faith filled, gospel centered, passionate singing. But the instruments are to support the voice of the congregation, not to drown them out or replace them. I'm deeply appreciative of our music team who seems to understand this balance really well. When I'm out there in the congregation, I can hear your voices and that is the way it should be. In verse 20 Paul adds yet another way we see the spirit's fullness manifested among us. How do we know if the spirit fills our church? Are we giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are we a grateful people who regularly expresses our gratitude to God for the good things we receive from him? In Romans 121 Paul places ingratitude, unthankfulness near the root of all sin. As one writer observes, we need to affirm that all we are and have comes from God. Only then can we live lives of response to grace. The practice of thanksgiving is itself transforming. It is difficult for a person to be thankful and spiteful at the same time. It is difficult... For a person to be thankful for his or her spouse and at the same time to be desiring another person. Not impossible, but difficult. I suspect many of you struggle with this idea of thanking God for everything. I do. Should we thank God for the death of a child? Should we thank God For the murder of a friend. Are we to thank God for the cancer destroying a person's body? I used to think so. Now, I wonder if it might be more appropriate, more fitting with what Scripture teaches elsewhere to view this here as a kind of hyperbole, apostolic exaggeration, perhaps. To thank God for blatant evil seems to suggest that he is responsible for that evil, doesn't it? John Stott suggests that, quote, God's children learn not to argue with him in their suffering, but to trust him, and indeed to thank him for his loving providence by which he can turn even evil to good purposes. But that is praising God for being God. It is not praising him for evil. God abominates evil, and we cannot praise or thank Him for what He abominates. Another writer builds on Stott's observation, We are not asked to thank God for evil. Rather, we are asked to live out our awareness that all of life, even the bad, is lived out under His control and in relation to Him. Nevertheless, we have much to be thankful for, and I suspect much more than we have actually verbally expressed thanks for. Gratitude, saying thank you out loud with your mouth is the only appropriate response to receiving a gift. It's the only appropriate response to grace from God. And in every situation, God is providing grace for his children. It is our responsibility to notice the gifts and to say thank you. It has become a habit in my praying to thank God for something at the very beginning of most prayers. Is our church Spirit filled? Is the Spirit's presence and activity manifest when we gather together? If we are found regularly thanking God for His gifts, then the Spirit is at work among us, filling us as a church. But there's one more way that we can see the Spirit's filling on on display in a church. Look at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Many of you know what comes next. Verse 21 is a bridge between verses 18 to 20 and the rest of the chapter. Thus, what submitting to one another is supposed to look like gets fleshed out in the specific relationships of Christian wives and husbands, Christian children and parents, and Christian slaves and masters. Paul has specific relationships in view here. Since this is a bridge kind of verse, and since this verse serves as a summary heading for the next couple of paragraphs, we should hold the other sides of the relationships in view as well when considering Spirit-filled worship. Thus, Spirit-filled worship will include husbands loving their wives fathers not provoking their children, and masters treating their slaves kindly. Now, it might not be immediately apparent as to why Paul would move from talking about singing and praying together in corporate worship gatherings to relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters. But remember, in the early church, where did Christians gather? They met in homes. Thus, the gathering took place in homes where husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, lived. And so, Paul's able to seamlessly transition from how we share life together in corporate worship to how we share life together in our family dynamics. So, what's the point? How do we know if the Spirit is filling a particular church? Are the wives of that church submitting to their own husbands? Are the children of that church obeying their parents? Back in Paul's day, they could also ask, Are the Christian slaves of that church obeying their masters? Now, why is submission presented as an evidence of the Spirit's filling in a church? Vodibachum seems to have hit the nail on the head here. He says, if you have a submission problem, it's not really a submission problem. It's actually a worship disorder. We submit to God by obeying and submitting to those authorities that God has placed in our lives. Paul makes this clear by indicating that our submission should be out of reverence for Christ, or as the New American Standard Bible puts it, in the fear of Christ. Normally in Scripture, we see references to fearing God, and Paul knows that, but he also knows that Jesus is God. So it's appropriate to think of fearing Christ. It is often observed that words like reverence or respect aren't quite strong enough. But we don't have a perfectly equivalent English word to get the point across in a relationship to God. One writer points out correctly, in the Old Testament, fear is a covenant word, a characteristic of those who love God. Fear and love are used almost synonymously to describe allegiance and obedience to God. How do we connect fear and love? You might remember John's words in 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But the context of John's words make it clear that he's talking about the elimination of the fear of judgment, the fear of punishment from God. And that is relevant to our discussion here because Paul speaks of fearing Christ, who is the one who has loved us and given himself to pay for our sins, eliminating our deserved condemnation and judgment. Jesus is holy. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is powerful. And Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. There is something intimidating about Jesus, even to us who follow Him. And in light of who He is, we take Him and what He says very seriously. That, I think, is the bottom line idea of the fear of the Lord for God's people, taking His Word deadly seriously. Thus, Paul is motivating us to live out our submission. Spirit-filled worship includes submission in relationships, and submission can be difficult, whether we're talking about in marriage or submission to the government. If I realize that submission in either of those contexts and otherwise conducting my role in my family and in my society, as God instructs, is to be a true expression of my submission to Christ, then because I take Jesus seriously, because I care about pleasing Him, I can find my motivation to do the hard work required in my relationships. And fulfilling these roles according to Scripture, living them out faithfully, is to be an expression of Spirit-filled worship of God. So, Spirit-filled worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. Churches that gather together regularly, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit as they focus their intention on instructing each other in God's Word through singing and preaching and conversation, praying and giving thanks, and proper submission in relationships will be churches properly involved in missions. The enthusiasm needed for personal evangelism and discipleship the generosity needed for sharing resources with other Christians serving in other places, and the character traits needed for actually going elsewhere and serving. All of this comes from the Spirit. Being Spirit-filled does not have to do with losing control or with particular gifts being expressed or with jump-starting our sanctification. And the outcome of spirit-filled worship in our churches will ultimately be more churches in more places fulfilling the Great Commission so that Jesus Christ receives all glory and all the spirit-filled worship of people from every tribe, every people, every nation, and every language on the planet. The worship of all nations will be spirit-filled worship for all of eternity. Let's pursue cultivating that now in this church. I invite the music team to join me on the stage. You might have noticed that we didn't sing much at the front end of things. And I'd like to close our time together singing a few songs to respond to this. I wanted to challenge you and charge you and remind you of the significance and the importance of singing and give you an opportunity to obey and to worship the Lord in that way together. So would you stand up and get ready to give heartfelt worship to the Lord using your voice out loud, regardless of how it sounds to your neighbor. So would you sing together as the music team leads us?